this is Kat, and this is Feminine Chaos. I am joined today by two guests. I have Lee Stein, a friend of the pod, previous co-host, author of Self-Care and the recent poetry collection, What to Miss When. Also joining us today is Penny Lane, a documentary filmmaker. Uh, Penny, you could actually, do you want to say the names of your of your movies that you've made or the ones that you're currently working on? Oh, sure. Oh, Hi. Uh, well, my most recent film is called Listening to Kenny G. It was just at Toronto and it'll be on HBO a little bit later this fall. My past films, there's many of them, but the most recent was called Hail Satan. And is it Hail Satan in the, you know, in the sense of like the devil? We just to make yeah. sure we're talking about. Cool. I was Not Satan. So it's Satan, actual Satan. So it's not about vegan meat substitutes. It's about <laughs> the embodiment of all evil. Correct. Definitely much more interesting. Uh, and Lee, you're still with us, right? Yes. Okay, good, good. So um, we all hopped on this call in a big hurry because something very exciting has happened in the literary, well, not, not even the Twitter sphere, although that's you know where everyone is talking about it. But there was a New York Times article called The Bad Art Friend, uh, it's a reported piece by Bob Kolker, and it is about one of the most fascinating stories uh, to come out of like literary, you know, small writing group world that I've ever read, and everyone is talking about it. Um, and it has to do with kidneys, and Penny is a kidney expert, um, but that will make sense in in just a second when we finish uh, running through like the the basics of this story. But uh, but that's why we're all here. Um, Penny's films are not, as far as I know, about kidneys, or is the one that you're currently working on about kidneys? Actually, it is, which is part of why my entire life yesterday became very complicated. Oh my goodness! Yeah, we'll have yeah. to we'll have to find out, you know, later on if this is going to influence the direction of your filmmaking because I can't imagine, you know, something like this falls in your lap. Like, what do you do? All right, I guess I'll I'll do my best to explain this, and Lee, um, feel free to jump in because I think some of this cast of characters may be more familiar to you than they are to me because you're more plugged into literary Twitter, whereas I am a genre fiction writer. Yes, so, and I'd love to first cat that that the person who sent me this New York Times story and said like please read this immediately um was a friend who had told me a story about a friend of hers that I am using in my new novel that's how I first heard about this story so we're about to tell you a twisted tale of using material from people's lives in fiction and I in fact am doing that right now <laughs> <laughs> which all writers do but there are ways that you can do it that are you know more appropriate and then there are ways that are more exploitive verging on cruel that in some cases open you up to allegations of plagiarism and lawsuits which is you know just one of the many things that makes this such a fascinating story so uh all of this dates back to Oh, shit. I don't even actually know. Or when is the it... story begins? Oh, good question. 2015. So there's two main characters in this story, Don Dorland and Sonia Larson. And in 2015, Don Dorland decided to donate her kidney to a stranger. This is uh, not a thing that I don't know anybody who has done this, except I guess maybe I do now. Um, but not not a thing that is common. Um, a lot of people donate kidneys, but often to friends and family. Um, it's very unusual to just decide that you're going to have your kidney removed and hand it off to anybody who wants it. 
So Dorland decided to donate her kidney. It also became, the fact that she had done this really became kind of a fundamental part of her identity. And what strikes me as as similar to the way that a lot of vegans will like make sure you know that they're vegan and why, and they'll sort of take any opportunity to talk about it. Dorland did something similar. You know, she talked a lot about donating this kidney. She made a private Facebook group just to talk about her kidney donation, posting updates about it. Evidently, you know, decided to kind of center her entire life and her entire public persona around the fact that she had done this. And in so doing, she brought a bunch of writers who she knew from this Boston-based writing program called Grub Street, not to be Mm -hmm. confused with the food blog. Um, This group of writers called themselves the Chunky Monkeys for reasons I don't really understand. Uh, (laughs) Because they were sharing chunks of manuscripts. Uh, Okay, so it's not... (laughs) Obviously. They weren't all fat. Um, Okay, good to know. (laughs) So, um, yeah, and, and this group of people was getting updates from Dawn Dorland about her kidney donation. Um, Dorland, who was clearly seeking a certain amount of validation and feedback in response to her posts, notices eventually that one writer in her group, Sonia Larson, is not commenting or liking or just responding in any way to her posts. Um, she reaches out <laughs> to say, I've noticed that you're not responding to my kidney posts. Are you aware that I donated a kidney? And from there, this wild drama begins to unravel because while Larson sort of pretended that she had like missed this information, it turned out that she'd actually been monitoring it quite closely and had been using Dorland's posts as the foundation for a story she was writing. Uh, Lee, do you want to kind of jump in here and, and take over the rest of the narrative? Sure. So there's like, this is such a, it's such a well-written piece. And I tweeted something yesterday that like the writer that comes out looking the best is Bob Kolker, the author of the New York Times piece, because it's just so well-written. But there are just these like little moments in this story where like the, the hair stands up on the back of my neck. Like the idea of emailing someone to say, why aren't you commenting on my posts? is a little is a little creepy but then it does become even even more creepy when we learn that all the time that Sonia was saying Sonia seems like someone who's really trying to set boundaries around her relationship with Dawn so her emails in reply to Dawn are very cold detached clinical as Dawn becomes increasingly emotional because Dawn starts finding out that there has been a story a short story written by Sonia about a woman who has donated a kidney and who has this white savior complex. And it turns out that not only was Sonia inspired by the Facebook posts, but that she actually used the text of the letter that Dawn sent to the the kidney recipient. And she used it almost verbatim in one version of the short story that became an audiobook. And then later she massaged it a little bit more so it wasn't quite so word for word, but it's still an obvious lift. At one point, even the main character of the short story was also named Dawn. So it's very obvious that she was using this for inspiration. And so then it becomes, this piece becomes about, you know, 
in the same way that we had a, you know, we had the conversation about Cat Person by Kristen Rupenian, it becomes a, a, a story about, you know, how far is too far when you're using material from someone else's life. Right. And I mean, the added wrinkle here is that even as Larson claimed that she wanted to set boundaries, even as she's being very cold, very detached in her interactions with Dorland, she's also spending a lot of time talking shit about her, like in just extravagantly cruel ways with this group of people who Dorland thinks are her friends um, or, you know, had hoped were her friends. And instead, they're all like hanging out together online, mocking her behind her back. Um, Larson is busy repurposing all of her posts into this unflattering fictional representation of her life, you know, to write a story about like some entitled white woman who's, you know, who's donating a kidney for for the wrong reasons, for all the wrong reasons. Right. And, and I pulled a quote, I pulled a quote from this this exchange. So the reason that we have these leaked text messages and 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 emails is because this escalated into a legal dispute. So so Larson, Sonia Larson texted one of her friends, I think I'm done with the kidney story, but I feel nervous about sending it out because it literally has sentences that I verbatim grabbed from Dawn's letter on Facebook. I've tried to change it, but I can't seem to. That letter was just too damn good. I'm not sure what to do, feeling morally compromised, like a good artist, but a shitty person. See, I have to say, if you can't find a way to rewrite somebody else's letter in a way that allows you to incorporate it into your story, um, you know, without plagiarizing the text verbatim, that doesn't make you a good writer. Like you should be able to do that. A good writer should be able to do that. But totally. you know, that's you know maybe my dirty lens on this thing. This entire saga, in addition to being like just a, a fucking train wreck and horrifying to read about, really gave me traumatic flashbacks to various times in my life when people who I thought were my friends were actually like all together talking badly about me behind my back. So I'm not capable of really being emotionally detached from this story. I just want to kind of say that up front. You should just, if you're really listening to this, you should just read the whole thing because we can't capture it in the span of this conversation. But it does devolve into a mess of lawsuits which you know surprisingly have have moved forward it seems like it's still ongoing there's still a question of you know how much legal liability larson will be subject to if she tries to you know publish this story anywhere it was canceled by a writing festival because of the plagiarism allegations also worth noting that dorland really went pretty scorched earth in her attempts to like get the story out there that she felt that her life had been plagiarized uh, by Larson. And now the conversation about this is very focused on, you know, there's a lot of disagreement amongst literary folks about who the bad guy is. At least one prominent media figure has declared that um, she wants people to like unfriend or unfollow her if they disagree with her about which one of these women is a monster. So that's, cool and normal um but now <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the best possible thing we can do with this incredibly nuanced and complex tale is definitely just decide whose side you're on and go with that 
Yeah, I, I kind of feel like what I really want to say most about this to anybody who's like aspiring to be a writer or to be a part of like the literary or media community is that despite what it might seem like, if you're looking at this conversation online, you don't actually have to behave this way. It's possible <laughs> to just talk about it in like a more detached and adult way without turning it into like some kind of bizarre mean girl style slam book popularity contest but um yeah it's so it's so interesting to me like I read the piece before looking at Twitter so I read the piece and my first reaction was like gosh both these people are terrible and then I went on Twitter and it was like the cool kids on Twitter the cool kids in the creative writing community were defending Sonia Larson and making out Dawn to be this um uh what's the word I'm looking for unambiguous villain and this is just part of like the ongoing clickishness in the creative writing community. So I, I, I sent the article to Penny because I knew she's making this documentary and I ruined Penny's day. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, Lee ruined no. my day yesterday. I literally canceled things in order to process my feelings about this story. <laughs> Wait, I also think it's important to say that in, in, in there's a, there's a dynamic between Dawn and Sonia that's important to reference, which is that Sonia is like a rising literary star. And I don't, think Dawn is, right? Like Dawn, has she published anything? I don't know. It's very clear that Sonia has like more cred, right? She's like a real writer. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because as I'm also reading this and I just know so many writers like Dawn, it's like they've made being in the writing community their professional career, but they aren't actually publishing. And I just am like reading this with dread thinking like there's all this energy you're pouring into this that you could be writing. Yes, totally. She could be writing a story, for example, about what it's like to be an altruistic kidney donor. Hmm, there's an idea. There's a story that hasn't been told. Yeah, so I want to take a moment to, since Phoebe is not with us, she's still on maternity leave. Apparently, you know, babies take a while to grow up, so (laughs) (laughs) rude. Um, But she's been tweeting about this, and uh, I want her her opinions represented on this podcast because she's had some interesting insights about the way that this sort of like popular kid dynamic is impacting the conversation. Um, So here's Phoebe on Twitter uh, writing, a part of the piece itself that really jumped out. Larson is popular. Dorland, at least in the context of this tale, is not, which I think complicates the power relations angle. Winner versus loser are their own categories, not identity ones, but meaningful all the same. It's easier to side with the winner, and all the more so if the identity lens interpretation suggests this constitutes a punch-up. Does it, though? Again, they both come across as awful in the piece. What's interesting, if unsurprising, in the response is the glee in an opportunity to publicly embrace team popular, but under the guise of, or perhaps while genuinely supporting, a kind of political righteousness. Is Dorland a stand-in for the all-powerful white lady or for the memo misser with no friends? So, um, good stuff from Phoebe. (laughs) Good stuff from Phoebe. The other thing we left out for context for listeners, if they haven't read the story, is that Dawn Dorland is a white woman and Sonia Larson is a mixed race Asian American woman. So as these things break down, you know, at least right now in the writing community, um, it's easy to just say, you know, for, for Larson to be more sympathetic on identity based grounds and to come across as like the victim for the same reason. Because if there's a white person in the equation and a person of color in the equation, 
people's sympathies tend to break along those lines. So another, I think another really important detail, we can't read the story that Sonia wrote because I guess it's gone, right? It's like currently under litigation. The description of the story in Bob Kolker's piece suggests that Sonia took this idea of Dawn being a white savior and kind of spun it out into like a major part of the story. So that so the, the racial dynamics go in multiple directions. There's the fictional story in which Sonia has kind of taken Dawn, her so-called friend, and represented her in this very unflattering way, making her seem like a, quote, white savior. But there's also the way it's playing out in the, let's say, the discourse, right, between the actual writers. Um, I don't know that I have anything to add to that. I, I feel like we should hand it over to Penny. Because I, I know as, as we were describing the story, Penny, Penny, I know she was burning to jump in. Oh, I was. Um, okay. So here's, I think this is an important detail that a lot of people are getting wrong. When, and it's based on what's in the story, assuming the story is accurate. When Dawn originally reached out to Sonia, she did not write to her and say, hey, I noticed you weren't commenting on my post. That's not at all what happened. She just checked in with her like in a normal friend way, like, hey, what's going on with you? Here's what's going on with me. I think you're aware that I donated my kidney last summer, right? Question mark, right? So she's just referencing an event in her life and asking her if she knew about it. She knows she knew about it because she had made this private Facebook group, which I think is a very bad move and weird. Remember back on Facebook, you used to be able to do this. You could add people to groups without asking their permission. I don't know mm. if you can still do that, but like it was bad. I got added to all kinds of groups I didn't want to be in. Yeah, there's a there's a group called Binders full of women writers. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit of a, a deep cut. Adding people to groups without asking their permission is a bad move. You shouldn't do that, right? So okay. I just really quick want to ask. So is this impression that Dorland reached out specifically because she noticed that the posts were not being commented on by Larson, is that editorializing on the part of the reporter who wrote the piece? Because I feel like it it is in there. It is somewhere. in there. It's it's in there later after she knows so after she finds out that Sonia is writing a story based on her Facebook posts, then she says, well, it's weird that she's pretending not to have seen them, which ah. is germane. That's germane to the situation. It's weird that she lied to me and pretended not to have seen stuff that in fact she had seen. It's just weird. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like why, like if it's, if it's fine what Sonia did, which is what so many fiction writers do is like take material from people they know, if that's fine, why is she going out of her way to hide and cover it up that that's what she did? Because she knew she was writing a story that made her into a kind of weird villain, I suppose. Yes, agree. I mean, I just want to say for the record that I just that nobody in this story comes out looking great. That is factually true. I'm not on anyone's side here. I'm, I'm just here because I think that the specific dimension of the story that Don is a non-directed kidney donor is a very specific experience that most people don't know anything about, probably including Bob Kolker. So there were aspects of this story that I felt that I, I saw and understood a little differently because I'd also been a non-directed kidney donor. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, the one thing to say about it is that, it, as you already said, Kat, it's very rare. Most people don't know anyone who's done it. It's basically was essentially illegal up until about 15 years ago. 
Um, and that was not because people had come forward wanting to donate kidneys to strangers, but the assumption on the part of medical professionals was that that was like suspicious in some way, like who would want to do that? There must be something wrong with them. Maybe they're being secretly blackmailed or something. So, so it wasn't done until pretty recently. And a few test cases happened in the early 2010s. There was a lot of publicity around those cases. And many people, well, some people, including myself and Don, saw those news stories and were introduced to the idea that you could do this. Oh, you could save someone's life by donating a kidney and donating a kidney is super safe and like really pretty easy in the grand scheme of things. Wow. Holy shit. I want to do that. I'm going to do that. And then we do it. And the problem is that most people read the same stories and their takeaway is not, hey, I want to do that. Their takeaway is there must be something wrong with these people. <laughs> I mean, that's absolutely what I might have thought had I not had the reaction I had. So there's about 200 people a year who have done this over the last few years. So we're talking about like a handful of human beings who've had this experience. Many of the people in this world do become somewhat evangelical about it. There's no doubt. That's a very common aspect of the experience because you think, well, when I heard about it, I was inspired and motivated to do it. And so if I talk about it, then other people will be inspired and motivated to do it. So I'm going to talk about it, right? Like, it's, What's amazing to me is that there's no place in the story where Bob Kolker gives any sense of motivation to Dawn for doing all this stuff, for, for posting p photos of her, I donated my kidney t-shirt and, you know, all this stuff that she's doing. Nowhere does it say what her motivation was. We're left to assume it's that she wants attention and maybe she did. But if you asked her directly, I can guarantee what she would say. She would say, listen, there are people dying, literally dying right now slowly dying a painful death on dialysis, you could save their life if you were willing to do this thing that means one night in the hospital and a couple weeks of feeling a little bit of pain. And if I talk about it, then people will hear about it. So I'm talking about it because isn't that amazing? Don't you want, don't you want you know, people to hear about this and save people's lives? So sure, there are mixed motives to all human actions, but it's a little annoying that the story doesn't include like the, the actual uh, reason that I'm certain Dawn would have given if you'd asked her why she was doing all this. So I think that there's definitely a phenomenon at play here where for somebody to do something as altruistic as this makes people uncomfortable. It makes them feel like they don't measure up. And 1000% that is true. Yeah. And so, you know, in response to that feeling of discomfort, like realizing that you could easily do this, like I'm sitting here thinking I could easily donate my kidney, but I really don't want to. Yeah. You know, and, and that makes me feel like, okay, I'm clearly like a, a less good person than the people who hear about this and think I definitely want to do that. And I think that, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm perfectly content to sit here and be kind of, you know, uncomfortable with the fact that I'm a bad person. But I think that people try to distance themselves from this or to cast it as something peculiar and something sinister and suspicious in order to make themselves feel better about that, you know, to, to cope with those feelings, which are not comfortable to have. I totally agree with you. And that's exactly 
another dimension of this story that I think people are missing. In in a way, that's exculpatory for this mean girl, you know, group text situation, right? Like, this is how we react. Like, when, when we're confronted with people who have done extraordinary acts of altruism, our first reaction is often disgust or suspicion. That's It's actually pretty common. Uh, so there's nothing really that awful about how that group text came out. Now, do I, now, why did I have a bad day yesterday? <laughs> because I'm now imagining all the group texts that are going around about me saying exactly the same thing. And it's, hor- it's, it's horrifying because, you know, at the end of the day, one person in this conflict saved another person's life at no small cost to themselves. And the rest of the story is people making fun of her for it. And seeing that reaction on Twitter, I mean, I know that that's not normal. No, I get it. Like Twitter's mean. It, it's still, it's upset. It's, it's pretty devastating. <laughs> it was a bad day for altruistic kidney donors because I don't want to, like, I don't know Dawn. I don't want to say anything mean about her. I read a story about her, but the story you know, doesn't leave you feeling like she's mentally very well, I guess, isn't the way I'd put it. Do you agree with that? You know, the other thing I was thinking, Penny, about this other piece I read recently, I don't know if you guys did it. It was by Chris Hayes in The New Yorker, and it was about like what's happening to us on the internet and the difference between recognition and attention, that what we really seek is recognition. And I think that's what Dawn was seeking. She wanted to be recognized for what she was doing. And instead, she got not only attention, but like the worst kind of attention because she became a character in a story. Oh, Lee, I love that you said that. I, I haven't read that piece, but that's that's really beautifully expressed because, again, there are aspects of this story that I can relate to, unfortunately, very specifically in ways that make me unhappy and uncomfortable. You know, and one of those is, you know, well... To state the obvious, not only have I talked a lot about my kidney donation, I mean, I've I've talked about it a lot publicly. I've posted about it on Facebook. I did not add anyone to a group without their permission. <laughs> I have posted about it. And I'm also making a film about it, right? So, so uh, you know, there's an element of the experience that Dawn was having where because we don't have any idea of what her motivations are for this, we assume she wants attention and she must be very needy. But from my own point of view, uh, especially early on, many of the reasons I was talking about it was that I was trying to understand my own experience. It was this really intense thing I was going through, and I just wanted to talk to people about it. I, wa- I wanted to hear their reactions. I, I, I wanted to process it in some way. And so it was a little, it was a little frustrating on a personal level when I had to sit through like the 10,000th pregnancy conversation that month while this other thing that was happening with my body (laughs) and my way of giving life, right, was sort of so uncomfortable that it was almost something that no one wanted to talk about. So uh, maybe Dawn felt that way. Maybe that's what she felt, that she was feeling hurt that this thing that she was doing was sort of seen as so weird that you couldn't even talk about it. I don't know. Well, it's something that strikes me um, in terms of the way that this played out specifically amongst a group of writers is that Dawn was anxious to talk about and explore something that had become incredibly central to her identity. And 
if she had, if the thing that was central to her identity was something else, if it was an experience growing up as a member of a racial minority, if it had been a traumatic experience, a sexual assault, um, you know, any, any of a number of things, there would have been not just an enormous amount of, of sympathy and validation for her because this is a thing that, you know, if you're a writer and especially if you're a woman writer that you're supposed to do, you know, you're supposed to like dump your identity all over the place and explore it and pick it apart and, and unpack your damage and your brokenness and, and talk about it all the time and kind of make it central to your work. Larson's stories are about unpacking aspects of her identity, you know, and everyone treats that like it's brilliant and wonderful. But for your, if your identity is centered on something else, something unusual, unrelatable, or, or, you know, something that makes people uncomfortable because it, it illuminates to them, you know, ways in which their own character might be lacking, then nobody wants to support that. That's so interesting, Kat. I hadn't thought about it from that angle, but it's almost like, and I think you and I talked about this on the last episode about just like trauma, trauma narratives, victim narratives, because Dawn's isn't a victim narrative. It's actually a hero narrative. And that makes people really uncomfortable. I see that when I talk about this publicly, I, I understand that there's a reaction that like I'm patting myself on the back or that I'm looking for validation. But you know what? I mean, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry that I feel proud that I saved someone's life. Like, really? Am I I supposed to, like, feel bad about it? Like, I don't know. I I do feel pride. Of course I feel pride. And, you know, I feel uncomfortable expressing that pride, but I don't really think anyone should deny it to me. Or whatever. Even if... Even if Dawn, let's say that the least charitable read is is true. Let's say she all she wanted was attention and she's mentally ill and she wanted people to like her and that's why she did this. She still did an extraordinarily good thing. So who cares? Penny, can you talk um, about, about that psychologist who's studying um, people who do these kinds of altruistic um, donations? Yeah. So for my film project, I've been filming with a psychologist at Georgetown named Abigail Marsh, and she's been studying altruistic kidney donors for about 10 years. She kind of knows more about us than anyone. One of the things in the story that really struck me, and this came up in many different places, was the sense that Dawn's uh, personality was such such that she kind of... um, was very open. Like even the fact that she thinks these people are quote friends and they're like, no, we are quote acquaintances. That is extremely common in this tiny population of people. So altruistic kidney donors tend to have like less filters for friendship. Like they meet you and they're your friend. Like that's the way that people describe it. That's the way the psychology is described. The psychologist has been describing it. So there's kind of like this place where even in her own letter that she's been so viciously mocked for. She says, you know, basically, maybe the reason that I want to do this is that I didn't have an opportunity to bond with my own family because there was so much trauma and abuse. And maybe that's made me feel more open to the suffering of strangers than people who are very close to me. That, again, is not super uncommon. I mean, I can relate to it. I can say that much. Well, something interesting, too, about the response to Dorland is this allegation or accusation that she's weaponizing her, I mean, 
people keep saying her white womanhood or her white tears, which I don't know, there's this there's this fascinating notion. And I want to be clear that I 100% disagree with it. It just strikes me as completely intellectually bankrupt. But that like, if you donate your kidney, not knowing who the recipient will be, but then the, the kidney turns out to go to a person of color that you've retroactively done something <laughs> benevolently racist. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Who knew it could be retroactive? Yeah. And this, I mean, this connects back to what you were saying a little bit ago, Kat, about this idea of like punching up or punching down, that everything has to be looked at through that lens. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's complicated because it's like, there's the short fiction, there's the fictional story, but then there's the behavior of Don Dorland as she escalated um, her attempts to seek some remedy for the for the wrong she felt that had been done against her by bringing in lawyers by um it celeste ing i think said uh, celeste ing who's a very um she's a best-selling author and she's implicated in this because she's a friend of sonia larson's and so she's quoted in the new york times article she's also talking about the story on twitter but she claims that um don dorland emailed Breadloaf, which is a very prestigious um writing retreat and residency and asked them to rescind sonia larson's scholarship or sonia larson's attendance at the residency um so don dorland has been sending a lot of emails again i think it's this is like again like another form of attention seeking or seeking recognition for what has happened to her um and so that has also been seen as a kind of like weaponizing her status as a white woman against a woman of color yes <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating because I mean, as much as you know, you look at the saga of this, and you can you can look at it and be like, okay, there was a point at which you know she crossed a line and she crossed another one, and you know the entire thing is so extra and it's so much. Um, and you know, had there been anybody in Dorland's life to say, well, you know, you're you are doing too much, um, you know, maybe there would have been a moment where she took a step back. But the nature of her existence was that she was kind of isolated and left, you know, feeling, I think, genuinely wronged. And I, I don't think there's any question that um, what Larson did to her was not just messed up, but, but cruel and motivated by, you know, cruelty. Um, if not, you know, not maybe only cruelty, but certainly that was part of it. And it's, it's clear from like her text exchanges that that was the case. Um, but you know, there's no recognition of this wound that she suffered. And so she keeps trying to show it to more and more and more people. Yeah. I, so, it's so interesting. You brought up the word isolated because that was another place that I, I felt like I, I understood her experience a little bit. Like being an altruistic kidney donor, when I look back on it, like isolated is one of the main words I come up with because you feel like a freak because you're doing this weird thing that no one understands and everyone kind of thinks you're an alien for doing it. And then you go through the experience and, you know, uh, you know, it's not all puppies and rainbows. Many people who become um, sort of evangelical about it or become like kidney cheerleaders like this woman Dawn um, they tend to talk about it like it's so great, but it, it isn't great. It's it's unpleasant in many ways, and you spend a lot of time in the hospital, and surgery's scary, and you know, and, and all that is very isolating. So I'm sure she felt very isolated at many stages along the way, and and the feeling that all of your friends are talking about you behind your back is one that, as you said earlier, we all relate to. And unfortunately, she, through her own hubris, found out exactly what they were saying, which is like 
the worst imaginable outcome for her. The tra- there's a there's a tragedy here and an irony here that she went from being a hero to being a wounded victim. Yeah, totally. It is it's a really tragic story. It's a really I mean, the piece is so good. I just want to say that too. I think Bob Kolker is an incredible writer. I've read a bunch of his books. He's great. And the piece shows all this nuance and, and great complexity in the fact that everyone thinks they're doing a good thing or that they've been wronged in some way. And everyone in the story is right and they're wrong. And that's the work of that that's the work of great art, isn't it? Yeah, well said. <laughs> yes, very much. Penny, I wonder if you want to talk at all, um, you know, more personally about your kidney donation experience, unless, you know, you're sick of talking about it. But I'm sort of curious and I feel like people might also be interested in hearing more about that. Oh, sure. I mean, the first thing to say again is that when in the story, Don says, oh, I heard about this and I knew immediately it was something I wanted to do. I think this is key to understanding this whole thing because every single non-directed donor or altruistic donor that I have met and talked to has said exactly the same thing. I heard I could do it and I immediately knew I wanted to do it. It was like really obvious. And that was my experience for sure. And then I've spent the last like three years trying trying to explain to people why that would be obvious to me, but not obvious to anyone else and trying to understand that. And that's kind of why I ended up deciding to make this film, because I felt that that was an interesting kind of mystery. So I decided I wanted to give a kidney to a stranger. I, I also knew right away that I didn't want to meet them, um, that I wanted it to be like a free gift I was a couple years after Don. I think that's also interesting to point out. So Don was really kind of a pioneer in altruistic donation. Not that I know her. I'm just saying like 2015, it was even more rare than it was four years later when I did it. Wow. So maybe she didn't think about this, but I thought, okay, you know what? Being the recipient of such an extraordinary gift from a stranger would sort of seem like it might be a very burdensome experience. And I didn't want that to be the case. I wanted my recipient to like have his own story and, you know, that, that, that his story was not part of mine. Um, and that I wanted to just kind of do it anonymously and keep it anonymous the whole time. Does that make sense? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I, so I get like, you know, um, yeah. So anyway, I didn't want to meet the recipient. I never did. Um, I found the experience mostly pretty you know, miserable, I guess. Like I, I was motivated by this desire to do good. And I mainly, um, yeah, it wasn't like super fun, it, but who would think it would be fun? Only an idiot would think it'd be fun. When you say miserable, like give us the deets. Well, I mean, think about the psychological evaluation. Like, would you be afraid to go into the psychological evaluation and try to explain this thing that you've so far been completely unable to explain to anyone else who's asked you? Like, I went into that psychological evaluation thinking, like, they're going to say that I'm crazy and kick me out. Like, this is terrible. So that wasn't fun. Like, all the testing, I had to go back to the hospital. So there's a psychological evaluation to ensure that you're in stable enough mental health to make the decision. Correct. And so when Dawn said her proudest moment was passing the psychological evaluation, I would have said maybe the same thing. I'm not sure I would have said proud, but it was a, 
it was a, a little bit of an ordeal and I felt really happy that I passed. <laughs> like I didn't want to be deemed too crazy to give a kidney <laughs> to a stranger. That's I'm like just my picturing worst. like you go in and they show you Rorschach tests and you have to say <laughs> they all look like kidneys or they don't let you do it. I mean, but also like, you know, they ask you questions like, have you ever been abused or, you know, they, they ask you a lot of questions about your life. And Again, this is where I feel so much sympathy for Dawn. I mean, you know, my life was all, my childhood was also marked by, let's say, trauma and abuse. I had a really tough life um, and mental illness does run in my family. So going into that evaluation, knowing I was going to have to say all that with the fear that then they'd say, you know what, they're going to close the notebook and just say like, you're too messed up to be a donor. Sorry you know, was tremendously um, frightening to me. So that was one aspect of it. And then there's just the reality of like, it does take time. They make you go through a lot of hoops because they want to make sure you're, you're really want to do it, which is understandable. But they make you come back for these tests like over and over again for months. And I started to just get really exhausted by it. And then I started to realize that I was going to have to take some time off of work. And that was going to be kind of a big financial hit for me, um, which I hadn't really thought about until I got to it. Um, but the average donor, you know, loses about $4,000 in wages and childcare and all this stuff. And, you know, that's a significant sum of money for, for most people. Um, and then the actual surgery was uh, scary. I had never been through surgery before. And I found that in the months and weeks leading up to surgery, I was really, really scared. And it, um, it really was, it was, it was frightening and I got through it and I was very relieved afterwards. That was the main feeling I felt was relief and the pride didn't really kick in until much later. <laughs> mm. I was wondering if, you know, when you're in the lead up to surgery, like you say you were scared and of course you would have been, but was there pressure to not talk about that? Were you basically unable to discuss it for fear that you would be disallowed from donating? Kat, I'm so glad you said that because yes, that of course, I mean, I, I don't know that there really was pressure, but I internally felt it. I felt guilty. I was like, think about this person that you're trying to help. They're dying. Like, that's who's important in this equation. Like, I, I don't need to feel sorry for myself for having anxiety. Like, I, I just felt like ashamed in a way that I wasn't more benevolent, that I wasn't able to like keep the needs of this hypothetical stranger, like more central than my own petty, you know, drama. But that that's kind of just the reality of being a person. It's really hard to, to not think you're the most important person in the world, right? Like, yeah, I felt, I felt horrible about it. I felt, I felt horrible about how much complaining I did. And the film will be very clear about how much complaining I did the whole time. Well, that's really <laughs> hilarious. I mean, not like hilarious, but there's something genuinely funny about it when you consider that you know there's an entire urban legend centered on the notion of waking up in a bathtub with one of your <laughs> kidneys gone you know that's been forcibly <laughs> taken from you the idea yes. of somebody removing an organ from your body is very viscerally frightening um so yeah you know i don't think that it's surprising at all that the prospect of having this happen even consensually right, right a lot of yeah. fear no it's not surprising except that it is true that if you were to embed yourself for a few months in like, again, what I would call like the kidney cheerleader community, people like Don who are promoting it, let's say, encouraging others to do it, what they say about their experience is universally positive 
it's like, it was great. It was really simple. It was no big deal, you know? And so to some extent, I think I, I believed that. Um, and I think that that's where I get off the bus because I can't be evangelical about this. This was a hard thing to do. I would never lie to anybody and say it was simple or easy. Um, and I do feel a little bit like I was misled, uh, that, that it would be so easy. And maybe it is easy for other people. I don't want to assume it was not easy for me. Well, thank you for sharing that story with us. Super, super fascinating. Um, Lee, I wonder if you have any additional thoughts about how this played out that is specific to the fact that it was happening within a community of writers. Um, mm. You know, is, is it that much more fucked up because it was all of these writers involved? Yeah, like I wonder if we should talk any more about Cat Person or like the other thing that happened yesterday is then Celeste Ng on Twitter said like, and what's even more messed up is that Dawn pitched this to the New York Times. So then Gawker wrote it up as like this crazy writer pitched her own story to the New York Times. And I thought like, is that crazy? Like, isn't it better... isn't it better and more nuanced to read the Bob Kolker reported version of this than the Don Dorland personal essay that would have been like the cat person? Like that's the other route she could have gone, right? If she wrote her own personal essay about it, but then she would have just come across as a writer with a grudge. Yes and no. She could have written a story that was an interesting, great work of art that represented her own point of view. Um, it, there's really nothing that stopped her from doing that. She she seems to have chosen not to. I think that what stopped her from doing it is maybe the fact that she's not really that interested in writing. I, I think that, um, you know, there was, I don't remember who noted this, but that there was a distinct difference evident in this story between people who are writers and people who like the idea of being writers um, or some something along those lines where, you know, or, uh, Dorland you know, really was in this, it seemed not because she felt driven to tell stories, but because she wanted to be part of this community, which I think is one of the things that made it so, you know, brutal for her to realize not only that, you know, she wasn't part of the community, but that she was being sort of actively ostracized from it by the people who had found acceptance there. And there was this section in the reported piece where, um, the where Kolker, you know, excerpts just like a few sentences of a work in progress that she's been working on. And I got the impression, and, and I wasn't the only one, that this was supposed to be a sort of, uh, you know, a way of, of demonstrating that she's not very good at writing. Did you guys get that impression? Interesting. Um, I feel like it's too it's too hard to say. Like it's there's not enough to go on. But I I do know this type, and I knew this type when I was running binders and BinderCon, that there would be like these dramas on Facebook, and a, a character in the drama. Like I would Google them, and I couldn't find a single piece online that they'd ever written. Like they didn't exist online as being a professional writer, but they were in a community for professional mm-hmm. writers. And so it is really interesting. I also found just like running BinderCon, like, you know, we would give scholarships away. We would have people come speak. And I've just, some of these people I followed for years and like in like seven years, they've never published another thing. And so I just think like, 
it's just interesting, like who's calling themselves a writer? What are the qualifications for calling yourself a writer? Uh, you know, are you a writer? Is it your identity? Like I knew I was a writer since I was a child or is your identity attached to what you do? Because for me, it's really attached to what I do. I call myself a writer because I write and publish. I'm writing for an audience. Um, mm. Can I make an analogy there? Because I think it's a really interesting analogy. Like, okay, are, is your identity based on what you say about yourself or is it based on what you do? I think about that a lot with regards to morality. So a lot of people are saying that Don Dorland was guilty of something called virtue signaling. Mm -hmm. But I'm really sorry to tell you this, but if you've done something virtuous, you are not guilty of virtue signaling. Right. <laughs> virtue signaling means you sit around saying the right things and people applaud you for it. So whatever else Don may have done wrong, I'm going to stand on this hill and say that virtue signaling is not one of them. Agree. Yep, 100%. Well, that's an interesting question, you know, is your identity what you say you are versus what you do? And I, I think about this a lot in the context of how um, people uh, in Gen Z discuss their status as sexual minorities. There's a lot of proclaiming oneself to be queer, and it seems to have a lot more to do with how they wish to be perceived by other people than it does with actually doing things, you know, dating and having sex with and having relationships with, with the people, you know, that they find attractive. There is no actual action that corresponds to the identity. It's all about, I am this and I want other people to recognize that I am this. Yep. Mm -hmm. There's that recognition again. Oh, I, I, I'll also add, um, I keep thinking, there's a quote that's often, you know, um, that comes up a lot in the memoir writing community, and it comes from a writer named V.S. Pritchett. And the quote is, um, it's all in the art, you get no credit for the living. And that means that, you know, people who have had incredible things happen to them think that they will write an incredible memoir, but without um, craft and artfulness having an interesting life does not necessarily make an interesting memoir. So it seems to me like Dawn has this incredible material and we haven't yet read like the fruits of her, of her writing, of her mind. We haven't yet seen Dawn's art. Like Sonia is the one that put art out into the world. And so that's, that's the record that we have to look at. And, and right now what Dawn has is her actual lived experience. That's incredible. And I would I just want to say as someone who is actually trying to do that work right now, Lee, as you know, because I have called you in a panic many times, this is a this is a tough story to tell. I mean, the story I just told was not great. Like it, it's it's a weird one. <laughs> I thought you know? it was great, Penny. I thought it was great. <laughs> well, thank yeah, you. But it's, it's it is a it's a tough one because there I don't know what the story of an altruistic donor is. Like, that's part of why I felt so isolated and I was seeking recognition, to use that word again. I, I, I was like, what is, what is this story? Like, you know, how do you make sense of this? Um, what is it like, you know? And what is it not like? And, and maybe, you know, if Dawn is struggling with that, then I, I just want to say I offer her my sympathy because, you know, I, I've been struggling with how to tell this story now for more than three years. And that's so interesting. And it's why I like talking to you on the phone about it, Penny, because it's so interesting for me to see that a documentary filmmaker has the same problem that a memoirist has, which <laughs> is that they have the material, they have a true thing that happened that's incredible, 
but they struggle with how to tell the story. Every memoirist goes through this and a lot of people quit before they can figure it out. Well, and I would say someone, I mean, as you can guess, millions of people have called me to ask me what I think about the story. And, you know, people are asking me like, will this affect how you make your film? And I'm like, God, I hope not because the only effect this could have would just be to intimidate me out of doing it because- Gosh, I mean, if I have to sit here and look at like what the meanest people on Twitter are definitely going to say about me just for making the film in the first place, like I I wouldn't be able to do it. So I I have to try not to let this whole thing affect me at all. Good. You know, it's it's fascinating that this corresponds not just to questions that plague documentary filmmakers and not just questions that plague memoirists, but I think questions that plague any artist at this point, because there is this debate kind of ongoing about what conveys the ability, and in some cases it's called, you know, the right to tell a story. Is it about your identity? Is it about your experience? Or is it about having you know, orthogonal to those things, the skill to tell a story in a compelling way. And this is, you know, I mean, this has generated so much controversy, you know, even amongst fiction writers, um, you know, this question of like, is this my story to tell? And it's remarkable how, you know, in this case, it's as though Dorland's story has been taken from her and retold in this unflattering way by Sonia Larson, who, but who arguably, you know, despite the fact that she did something quite cruel, also probably did a better job at making a compelling narrative out of this, at least thus far, than Dorland would or has. Yeah. Yes. And it goes one more layer. This is why it's such a great piece, because Sonia, in part, thinks that Don's sin is that Don is using the experience of her recipient as part of her story, right? That she's kind of taking that person's story now and making it part of her, like, hero tale. I think that that's part of it, from what I could tell from the excerpts we read. Oh, because she met the recipient, Yes, but in the story, I think it's more attenuated. Like, so in the short story, I think it's made into like a a racial issue, whereas in whatever reality it's not. But I think that that's part of what Sonia was imagining was that the only, you know, that part of the motivation for this weird act, what what could possibly be the motivation for it? Well, it must be attention seeking and in some way it's taking this other person's misery and like, you know, pat patting yourself on the back with it in some way, if that makes sense. Mm. But I, and I think, and I think that is weird. I think it's super weird. That's why I'm not, that's why I'm not trying to like use the life experiences of my own recipient in my own art. I don't feel I own that person's story either. And so there's this kind of weird, yeah, territorialism about it. Yeah. Well, I think the moral of the story is that, you know, if you're going to donate a kidney, you have to make sure that it goes to a white person. (laughs) (laughs) excellently said also never write any short stories yeah never post on facebook and never invite people to groups without their don't don't go on twitter try don't try to have any friends what else it is interesting like cat person and then this story the kindest like what are the odds of a short story going viral like this is like a one in like five million chance 
So maybe like the genre is just cursed. <laughs> That's entirely possible. None, none of us are short story writers, right? Nope. Okay, we're no. safe. Thank God. <laughs> don't touch it. Uh, any final thoughts on kidneys, writers, writers who write about kidneys, kidneys who write about writers? <laughs> what, what do we got? Anything? Well, I just want to point out again, just for the record, one of the two, I'm not, I'm not taking sides, but one of these two people saved someone else's life. Just throwing that out there because I think somehow that keeps being missed. Thanks, Penny. Well said. Let's let's end with that. Uh, thank you, Lee Stein and Penny Lane, for joining me. This has been Feminine Care.